Hey, everybody. Today is Monday, July 3rd, 2023. Coming up on the show today, from Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny, editor Mike McCusker. Sometimes you cut something down and it feels like you're, I wouldn't say longer is the right word, just feels like you're in the movie. And sometimes making something longer is what the movie needs. You need a moment. You need to allow the character to feel for a minute. Editor Dirk Westervelt. So I was curious, like, what's this going to be? You know, like, is Jim going to really put a big imprint and sort of change the vibe of the whole thing and make it, you know, is this going to be like the Logan of the Indiana Jones franchise? And editor Andrew Buckland. Please, someone else take this. I hate this question. And I, I, I just hate it. I'm on record. Yes, all that and a lot more on this edition of The Rough Cut. Well, welcome, my friends. Welcome to a special celebratory episode of The Rough Cut. You see, today is July 3rd, one day before the 4th of July. You know, that's how it works. Four comes after three. And no question, the 4th of July is certainly a big day of celebration here in the United States. And might I add, no matter where you are, I hope you find a reason for celebration today, or any day. But July 3rd is actually a day of celebration here on the podcast. Four years ago today, July 3rd, 2019, the Rough Cut podcast was rebooted, reborn, reanimated, thanks in no small part to editor Dangerous Dan Lebenthal for being so kind as to help kick things off talking about his work on Spider-Man Far From Home. As fate would have it, Dan would be on two more times after that, most recently for Dungeons & Dragons Honor Among Thieves. So almost every week for the past four years, a few breaks here and there, you and I have gotten to know some incredible people in the world of post-production and composing. Hans Zimmer snuck in there a couple of times, but, you know, we'll make an exception for him. So I tell you all this so that we can do two things. First, we pause and consider all those people, mostly editors, who set aside some time to come be on the show. If we have learned anything from these interviews, it's that working in film and television is a career that is very demanding of one's creativity, one's perseverance, and certainly one's time. And for those people to give up some of that precious time for us, I am very grateful. This show is nothing, literally nothing, without all of them. I mean, it would be nothing but this, an hour of me talking. Imagine that, why don't you? Not pretty, is it? Second, remember I said two things, second is to thank you. Your time is valuable too, I know. I don't take that for granted either. Hopefully the podcast is something that has given you some valuable information, entertained you now and then, and maybe just kept you company from time to time as you make your way through the world. For me, the reward is getting to know the guests we have on, or getting to know them even better. But it's also about getting to know you and hearing about your own journey. I love hearing from you. And no matter where you are on that journey, I wish you nothing but the best. You know that. So happy podcast birthday to all of us. Now then, let's get back to why there's a podcast in the first place. Indiana Jones is back. And he brought with him three fantastic and fun, boy are they fun, three fantastic editors. We've met them before here on the podcast, but on separate occasions. Joining us as a team for the first time are Mike McCusker, Dirk Westervelt, and Andrew Buckland. Andrew is his professional name. His friends call him Drew. So if you do happen to run into him, make sure to call him Andy. He'll know I sent you. Mike and Andrew have worked on a ton of movies together and are pretty much a team unto themselves. The last time they were on the show was to talk about Ford versus Ferrari, for which they both won an Oscar. I should add that Dirk also did a little work on that one. All three editors first worked together on another James Mangold project, and that would be Logan. As for Dirk, he was on the podcast previously to talk about Zombieland Double Tap. And he also worked on Deadpool 2, which, if you check out the Rough Cut YouTube channel, there's a pretty cool video about that. 
These three talented people clearly have logged a lot of hours working together over the years, and that really comes through in the way they interact with one another on the podcast today. You see, that would be the fun aspect I mentioned earlier. And I should probably explain a little more about that. We recorded this on a Sunday, which is something that no one prefers to do. It was also Father's Day when we recorded this. And on top of that, Andrew Buckland was already on his post-indie vacation in Hawaii, basically joining us about 20 feet from the beach, Mai Tai in hand. And the work they did de-aging Harrison Ford for this movie is nothing compared to the de-birding I had to do on Drew's audio. I was mostly successful. You might hear a chirp here and there. And as for Mike, he was getting ready to fly off to London the next day for his new editing gig. So he was kind of busy. What that all adds up to is a bunch of guys that kind of got a little punchier as the interview went on. So forgive us. Sometimes you just have to let loose a little. Like I said before, when you listen to this, I hope you're educated, I hope you're entertained, and I hope we can keep you company for a little bit. I'm not going to bother with an explanation on Indiana Jones or even this film in particular. I think you got a handle on that already. But what I will do is to make sure you have a handle on how to get the best production audio possible for your next film or TV show. Now I'm just going to assume you don't already have John Williams lined up to create an iconic score for your movie. That would be great, wouldn't it? But he's just one person. He can only work on so many movies at a time anyway. But what if you could have an audio army of incredibly talented musicians, composers, and producers at your beck and call anytime you wanted? Well, you can. Thanks to the wonderful people who helped to bring you this podcast. None other than Extreme Music. They have some of the biggest names in the business, all available in a massive catalog of tracks just waiting for you to come dig through them. And that catalog could not be easier to peruse, all thanks to their powerful search engine that allows you to search on musical qualities like tempo and instrumentation, and also lyrics. Maybe you want music to actually tell the story. Well, it can. You just need to tell Extreme Music what you're looking for. You can even upload a reference track to them, and they can use the qualities they decode from that track to find what you need. So simple and yet so very powerful. You can get it all done right there online, or one of their reps can reach out and lend a hand if you need some help with the licensing. So the next time you have a great story to tell, tell it with great production audio from Extreme Music. Now then, today's podcast adventure is at hand. Time to meet our avid editing action heroes. Here are Mike McCusker, Andrew Buckland, and Dirk Westervelt. on everybody else's track but that's cool uh i'll send you some wild a wild track nice yeah. let's get right to it because i think everybody's got things to do today least of which is talk to me i was saying to andrew mike i don't think i've talked to you guys in a while but i did talk to dirk the other day i asked dirk what he was up to and uh he said i'm QCing the movie we're recording this like maybe a week week and a half before the film comes out and yet dirk you're still doing QCing. what is that process what are you required to do and why are the other guys laughing at you the QC I was doing was just for a very specific thing, was for this ScreenX format, which I don't know if you've ever seen it, but it's these huge side panels that are like wings that come off the side. Matt roped you into that? He roped me into that. Didn't you do... Uh, I did it for Ford Ferrari. But didn't you also do a different flavor for this movie? No. I, I mean, I went to IMAX, but I didn't... Maybe the IMAX, that's the one I think he, that's the one I think he made. He said he was sort of trying to, you know, spread the pain or whatever. Yeah. And then it, Bjork is like the uh, designated D-Box pilot, like test pilot, which is our one of our... Um, his, it was our post coordinator. So he's sort of just different people are like knocking out different formats that go around the world. And they just did the Ace thing too, which is some French thing that I'd never heard of and haven't seen, but it's just flashing lights or something. So you drew the short straw and had to do the QC. On that particular one thing. Also, it was like seven blocks from my house, so that was nice. I got to say, when I saw the movie, the moment that it really became an Indiana Jones movie for me, and thankfully this was very early on, was the first time Indiana Jones punches a Nazi in the face. 
And it wasn't just the act of it, it was the sound of it that was so evocative of all the earlier films. You know, you get that crunchy reverby punch sound that just does not exist in the real world. Andrew, were you working with sound effects from an existing Indiana Jones library? And whether or not you did, to what extent do you get your hands dirty with sound design and doing things like spotting sound effects? Well, usually we do work with sound effects as we're cutting, but I think in this instance, our sound department was working pretty early and we were able to pass scenes over to them and they would do a pass and deliver effects to us. And I'm not sure exactly what they were pulling from, but I'm sure they were pulling from Lucasfilm Library. But initially when we start cutting, we do use sounds to sort of indicate what needs to happen and then they will get quickly replaced. But I don't think we had a Lucasfilm library in our Avid loaded. We just had sound effects and we would sort of incorporate them in, right? Didn't they start early? It was two years ago or something. I can't remember, but they were pretty early. I mean, that's the way we've been working with Jim for years. I mean, we've been on sort of the cusp of dealing with front loaded sound design. A lot of times traditionally, as you know, the sound design starting sometime in the midst of the director's cut, but we start like <laughs> way early while he's shooting. You know, Jim is constantly refining, throwing out new ideas, and also is extraordinarily picky. So it affects the way he sees the scene and the way he actually processes his notes. And if sound is bugging him, it throws him out of like actually evaluating. So we're doing like really fine sound very early on and have been with him for years. Same on Ford Ferrari. Same on Logan. It's tricky, you know, because I'm about to go on a movie where I'm not doing that. And I've gotten really used to that. I'm used to actually having like a sound department starting much earlier. But that's really something that Jim's been pushing for and is on the forefront. And because where he is in stature as a director, he gets it. Well, I said the punch was what made it sound like an Indiana Jones film. Something that made it sound like a Lucasfilm film was the Wilhelm scream. I think you actually do it twice. Yeah. So I'd just like to know what kind of thinking goes into like, all right, as soon as we do this, we're winking at the audience. So we got to figure out where and when and certainly how often to do this. <laughs> we should get Don on this call. Yeah, we should. <laughs> <laughs> He's tried to put them in, I think, every every film, right? I remember on um, on Logan, there was one in there. And it was in there for quite a while. And like he had it in and the, it was sometime in the final mix. And we reviewed the reel that it was in and it played back and everything. And he, they were, every, Jim had never said anything. So they thought they sort of got it by him or he was going to let it fly. And he gave all the notes on the reel. And then just as he was walking off the mix stage, he turned around and said, oh, get that Wilhelm scream out of there. <laughs> and then it was gone. Wilhelm scream is a, um, a lot of diplomacy involved in using that. <laughs> You know, it was, uh, I don't think any of us were like running around trying to place it. No. And I don't think that our sound designer wanted to use it and, and Jim didn't yeah. either, but there was an appeal for tradition's sake to put it in. So we found a spot for it, but you know, in our minds, the Wilhelm scream wasn't something that was going to make or break whether or not it was an indie movie. Well, I certainly enjoyed it. <laughs> Speaking of tradition, this is an iconic figure in cinema that you're working with. Of course, I'm talking about Dirk. Yes, of course. Sorry, Dirk. <laughs> Dirk would make an awesome action hero. He's got the look. He's got the name. So I'm just going to throw that out there. It's another genre. An action hero or another type of hero. That name is more associated with Boogie Nights. <laughs> I knew I shouldn't have said that. But getting back to Indiana Jones, is there for you and Jim, I'll call him Jim like I know him, is there an Indiana Jones template that you have in mind that you have to adhere to? Elements that you want to call back to? Gotta have Nazis. 
Okay, you check that box. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Always got to have Nazis. And you got to punch some of them. Yes, exactly. <laughs> You've got to have some sort of tomb tunnel situation. Yeah. Got out of that. Chase. Chase. I think because it's a Jim Mangold film, I think it's a new template, ultimately. But he was also aware of, I wouldn't say different, but the visual aesthetic of what came before. And he tried to honor that within his own style. You know, the classic moment in the movies where Indy's like comes right into the foreground with Brim right next to the camera and has that moment. He was really trying to make that play in certain other places. And also, you know, the kind of adventure noir of the 40s where a character's in the foreground and there's a guy in the background. So there was a lot of like, he was cognizant of honoring that visual aesthetic. He wasn't moving completely away from it, but it wasn't slavish. Well, I mean, is it his style in any of the films that you do with him to give you references and sit you guys down and say, like, this is what I'm thinking here. Maybe go back and watch this film or this show or whatever. He does do that. I'm trying to remember what all the references were in this case. Like the first time I worked with him was on Logan. I remember that the one that really sticks out to me was like Touch of Evil, a lot because of the way it's staged. There's the kind of a noirishness anyway that Jim leans into, kind of like foreground staging, the depth, you know, in front of the camera and that kind of stuff like kind of a general reference for him through more than one movie. I remember what the ones were on this one. And there was, were, you know, it's been a couple of years now, and there were a couple that I went and watched even at the beginning before I came on. There was the obvious of watching all the films in the Indiana Jones franchise. But there were a couple other, which they tend to be with Jim, like kind of classic mid-century kind of period stuff. Do you guys remember any of the ones that he threw out at the beginning on this? No, you were in a kind of unique situation because you were sitting with him while he was shooting and we were in LA. Yeah. And also came on late. Yeah. yeah. So Dirk was in Europe. Dirk was in London for months while we were in LA. So we didn't really have that sort of give and take that you usually get when you're actually, you know, in the heat of making the movie because, you know, we were 6,000 miles away. So it was really just about what the discussion I had with him was really honoring what had come before within the series. I think that it's a little different for Jim in that, you know, I've watched him, I've worked for him for a long time. So I've watched his visual style change over the years. And he went from a guy, he used a moving sort of almost handheld camera to really capture performance. And as he advanced through larger movies, he started to embrace real composed frames. And so he kind of ends up in the series in a natural way, having traveled that way. I mentioned to Dirk the other day, the credit roll for this movie is longer than pretty much any Marvel movie I've seen. I mean, you have about a billion people working on this thing. More to the point, and you guys have addressed this a little bit already, it, it seems like forever that you've been working on it. I think you said two years. So let's go back to a happy place, winning the Oscar for Ford versus Ferrari. That would be February of 2020. That's certainly a high point. But in early 2020, where was Indiana Jones on your radar? Did James even know about it yet? Had he talked about it with you yet? And then once he did, what was the overall timeline for the post-production process? He did talk about it. He did talk about it. He spoke about it as the potential next project. Not sure exactly when it was going to start at that time. He talked to me about it. I mean, things changed rapidly. There was going to be an interstitial movie between Ford Ferrari and Indy, which is now what Drew's about to cut which was the Bob Dylan movie. So that was supposed to happen. And then we're going to go do this. But he had been in conversations. He let me know he had been in conversations with Lucasfilm for an extended period of time about doing the Indiana Jones movie. And a lot of it was pushed by, I think, Harrison, because Harrison was a huge fan of a Ford Ferrari. And then on top of that, Jim had 
helped out and done a little work on a movie that Harrison had done at Fox, one of the last movies at Fox, which was called The Wild. So they had established a rapport. And around about that time, Steven Spielberg was backing away from the project and Harrison was talking to Jim about it. So that's how Jim got involved. It was already kind of pre-production in place. I mean, really early pre-production and a script. And Jim just wanted some time to rework the script. So they got extended time and went forward. But you know, I think the toughest part, we're on the back end, we're in the post-production world. So, I mean, if you were to talk to the producers on, I think the most difficult part was prepping a movie in the midst of a pandemic or at the tail end of a pandemic. So even just regular, like sitting in a room and brainstorming ideas for scripts or sequences or bits or whatnot becomes Zoom calls and emails and texts, which is just, you know, it was an adaptation for everybody involved to figure out how to do that. But I know that by hearsay, <laughs> because by the time we were on, it was really, here's the script. This is what we're doing. Um, I think that some of the hangover of like the inefficiency of trying to deal with all of the pre-production landed on us in post and that we got really involved in, as we always do with previs, but we were dealing with previs a lot of times as they were shooting. So it was really important actually that we had the three of us because at one point I was pulled on to previs for the last act of the movie for like a couple of months exclusively. We were previsiting and they were shooting. So a lot of the stuff that was coming in was really Dirk and Drew who were cutting large swaths of the movie. I couldn't do both. I mean, it was like the previs itself was a full-time job. So that's kind of a lot to say in one question, but it does involve like what we were dealing with sort of pandemic-wise. Also, I think they were shooting... I mean, I know Jim was complaining. He was frustrated because of the whole COVID schedule. They weren't shooting linearly, like they were shooting the scenes out of order a lot. And I think it presented challenges because specifically, I can refer to in the beginning, the knife fight on the roof of the train. For the longest time, it was literally, I, I don't know if you remember that moment where Weber's holding the, the lance in his hand. Well, for the longest time, that was literally a knife. And because Jim didn't know at the time, because of the, of the, of the way he was shooting it, how Weber was actually going to have the lance in his hand at that moment. So for the longest time, we were cutting with just a knife. And then when we figured that out, then it was replaced with the lance. Yeah. Cause we figured out how he would digitally, how he was going to actually have the lance in his possession. In general, how did the pandemic impact your ability to collaborate? Dirk's over in London. You guys are back in L.A. What was the setup there? Dirk was on the front lines. I mean, the most difficult sequence in the movie, without a doubt, is the tuk-tuk. And early on, I was trying to be a part of that with Previs. But I was like, I realized there's no way because there's so much communication that had to happen between Jim and Dan Bradley. And they were beating it out that, you know, that's why I was like, Dirk needs to be. Dirk needs to be over there. Like, I mean, that sequence, I'm 100% sure would not work if Dirk wasn't making it work in terms of being the bridge between the first and second unit, because that was something that had to be managed properly. If that had to come through LA, I don't think it would have been nearly as good as it is. In past movies, we sort of like, there's not been a kind of real division about like, here's my section, here's their section. We kind of like flow between. This was more divisional because of pandemic. Like Dirk can talk to you about Tuck Tuck because it was like, and he can also talk to you about the attrition rate of extras and actors on the sets because he was there every day with somebody new. It's funny because the shutdowns with the COVID stuff, bad for obvious reasons, but also gave us time to sort of recover in between 
periods of shooting so that they could sort of plan what they were going to get next and into sequences and into some set piece scenes and things like that. I mean, there were complications. Like there was a very good Viz version of the Tuk Tuk, for example, that, you know, Mike probably worked on at some point. I know Drew did a lot of work that was all planned for the shoot they were going to do in India. And then COVID went out of control in India. So they changed the plan to shoot in Morocco very last minute, like a few weeks before they had to shoot and it had to be all reconceived for different locations, you know? So then it became a process of trying to save as much as, as we could of that really good version that they had almost had a pin in and grafting it onto this new location. And in some ways when the shutdowns happened, like it gave you time to do some of that kind of work. The irony is then by the time that they went to Morocco, COVID there was worse than it was in India and you couldn't kind of stay in front of these things, but they were always trying anyway. But some of that gave us a little like reprieve from dailies coming in every day to kind of figure out what they still needed to pick up on sequences that we, we had halfway in the can and stuff like that. Mike just said this film was very divisional as opposed to the way you guys have done things previously. Was it literally like hard walled, like Dirk's going to work on this specific scene or sequence? Mike's going to do this one and I'm going to do this one. I think initially it sort of worked out that way. I know Mike was trying to beat out the previous for the uh, final act. And so all these dailies were coming in and I was sort of managing what was coming in. And Dirk was over in England doing a lot with two big action scenes, the um, Tuck Tuck and Underwater. Underwater was, uh, Dirk will speak to this, but it was, you know, it was, um, it was really, really difficult, uh, that <laughs> sequence. So it just so happened. I just ended up, a lot of the drama scenes I ended up working on and, yeah, I guess you just put your stink on it, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> you know? <laughs> well, Turk said something his last day on the movie as he was walking out the door. He says, hey, next time, maybe you'll let me cut some dialogue. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and I didn't even, I hadn't even thought of that. That's the way it worked out. Yeah. But it was that he hadn't, he really had not gotten like full drama scenes because he was dealing with two of the most difficult, like, unformed sequences in the movie which at the end of the day are actually very successful yeah particularly the underwater because oh yeah i mean there's so much in there that is well we'd be giving away the tricks but there's like wholesale digital everything in that sequence that was really something that dirk was leading the charge on creatively so both those scenes were really tricky and actually could not have involved us there had to be somebody on the ground in the uk working moment to moment to get those to work well, Dirk, you don't have to give away all the tricks, but maybe one of them. Is it the underwater aspect of it, or is it just the nature of that scene as it was written and constructed? It just wasn't the viz and the sort of planning for that one probably wasn't as evolved as in some other areas. Um, it was kind of like changing. It was also, I mean, in, in both of those sequences, in Tuck Tuck, it was the, the first unit, and in underwater, it was kind of almost everything. We're sort of happening in the waning days of this production campaign so so we're, they were sort of running out of time and uh jim wasn't there with when they were shooting some of the tank stuff you know i mean obviously with underwater stuff but he, he had monitors on everything but he's probably managing four different sets at that point and we were still kind of figuring out exactly what the the action was through the scene so every movie has like a, a sequence or, or two that's kind of not as evolved in the planning as other stuff so that, that one of the ones on this one that was you know the blueprint wasn't that dry in terms of how it was all going to come together. So, and it being a tank scene and underwater and all of the challenges that come with that anyway, meant that there was a bit of figuring out to do. 
I mean, it's interesting because like if you go online, you'll see all kinds of stories about us having massive reshoots and stuff. There were really hardly any reshoots on the thing at all. I think we had two days of little pickups. It was like minuscule, barely anything. And and they did, but they did pick up a couple pieces for that. You know, like there was a couple pieces that we needed mm-hmm. um, with Harrison and, and um, you know, th- things that we needed to pick up for that at the very end. It was like a week, not even about a week total of additional it put the ad in additional because it wasn't something that we had to redo. It was just, we needed footage. It was like little pickups, yeah. you know, it was, it was like things to graft into scenes as opposed to like reshooting scenes or anything like that. Mm-hmm. Well, for a movie of this size, that's actually pretty remarkable that that's all that was. You know, we've talked a little bit about previs and all the work Mike had to do with previs. We've talked about how you guys share the workload. There is another editor who's not able to join us today and that's John Barry. I caught his name in the additional editor credits in the midst of that 20 minute credit roll. It wasn't 20 minutes, but it was, it was long. <laughs> Felt like it. Eight and a half. It's eight and a half. <laughs> eight and a half. Okay. Eight and a half minute credit <laughs> roll. But there's John Barry, additional editor. And by trade, I believe he's largely a VFX editor. He's in there twice. That's one of the reasons the credits are so long because we have to keep putting John. <laughs> Made demands. Yeah. <laughs> he's in there as VFX editor also. VFX editor and then additional editor. It's not uncommon. In fact, it happens all the time that an assistant editor gets bumped to an additional just based on the work that they're doing. But how does that work for VFX editor that they are actually bumped up to additional? They cut. Uh, yeah. They cut. I, don't know if it, I don't know if it's that unusual. <laughs> There's some VFX editors that have made the trip up to editor probably through an additional credit, like Jim May, who you've probably spoken to in the past, was a VFX editor. I was a VFX editor, um, although went back and forth a little for a couple of years. And as Mike said, more uh, succinctly, they cut. So, Drew, I asked you about the sound effects and how evocative those are. The score itself certainly takes the nostalgia factor up exponentially. When you hear the Raiders march, when you hear Marion's theme, I mean, you guys can't help but score points off that stuff. But again, like we were talking about the Wilhelm scream, you want to use it judiciously. You don't want it just to be, you know, dun, 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 every five minutes. I think the Raiders march first pops up on the train sequence and then yes. Marion's theme comes up when Indy's talking about where their relationship is at. Were those moments where those motifs do come up clearly scripted out by James because of how specific they are? Or was there some latitude for you guys to really feel out how and when to literally hit those notes? There was latitude. And I think a lot of the discovery of where to place the indie theme came later when John was involved. We have a great music editor, Ted Kaplan, who really took all of John's previous scores and sort of mapped out the film. And it's funny because we really didn't have a conversation about where we should place the indie theme. And I think that the only placement we had originally early on was the train sequence. And we discovered later that there's a moment in the tombs when Indy's behind the sarcophagus and he's shooting and the action bit. I think initially you hear a trace of the theme. So it was pretty much kind of a process of discovery, I think, with his theme. One of the things that's different about this movie that's not, we're not wearing it on the sleeve is that in the other movies, Indy goes on adventure by choice. And in this movie, he's reticent to go on the venture. In fact, he says at the airport, this isn't an adventure. And so placing the indie theme was tricky because it's not like it's like, I'm going to go get the idol or I'm going to go get the ark or I'm going to go get the. I, he wasn't doing that. He was like trying to fix a problem. Right. And so it changes the way and, and the use, it, it, you know, placing that theme, which is in the movie a lot, but we couldn't just take it from a previous movie and dump it in. It didn't work that easily. Motifs of it had to play. And that's where John and Jim really figured that out. 
A concept that comes up a lot in these interviews is the notion of trusting your audience. You know, in this film, you're bouncing around doing these time jumps, going to different locations. Other than the classic Indiana Jones map montage that everyone knows by now, you don't really spoon feed the audience with titles about time or location. The music, the production design, the dialogue, diegetic audio, insert shots, all that stuff, you let those things fill in the blanks for you. That said, was there ever any consideration given to maybe we should drop in a date here or a location title there, just so the audience, for those of them that aren't really sure when the astronauts came back, things like that? I think I could speak for all of us to say, I'm trying to think. <laughs> well, but I mean, in general, Jim doesn't, and I agree. It's like, we don't want to do that. No. I mean, like as filmmakers and working for Jim, I think we all come at the movies from like, how do we try, how do we figure out how not to do that? If it's in there in a movie that we've worked in, then it's because we absolutely have to. I mean, if you were to look back on the movies that I work with Jim, it's just, he doesn't do that. You make sure he's planting stuff in the dialogue and mise scene that actually says, here we are. And that's where it allows the audience to figure it out. And so far, we've been pretty good, pretty successful. So, having said, the maps are sort of an organic version of that, right? In this, yes. in these yeah. movies, there was a little like I think at one point, and this is one of the things that Jim would just discount out of hand. It's probably just the, the stupid idea to begin with, but like almost felt like with the Moon Day thing at the beginning, Space Oddity is playing in the next scene when he's making himself coffee, right? And like that came out, like they rushed it out before the album because they wanted it out before like the astronauts were coming back and all that in 69. And I thought that there could be like a radio DJ, you know, Drew does this amazing like old timey uh, radio voice. I thought it could have been <laughs> a little like Drew, you know, doing a little, you know, it's moon day and, and, and here's a new track from David Bowie or whatever um, to kind of put a finer point on it. But yeah, right. I mean, Jim is always about this, you know, allowing the audience to discover there's a, a, there's a reveal, like we're constantly sort of trying to reveal through the scene, time period or place. Drew, I mean, as Dirk just said, you are a fantastic voiceover artist. They seem to call back at Ford v. Ferrari. Yeah, as a track announcer, yeah, during the, the first race in Willow Springs, yeah. I was a track announcer, too. <laughs> just want to make sure everybody... I'm... I was going to get to that, Mike. No, I was a track announcer. You were. And I got cut. You were. Yeah, you got cut, yeah. I got cut. But, you know, if you're looking for old-timey cars, if you're looking for... Give us a little. It's a beautiful day here in Willow Springs, and we've seen some exciting driving. 12 cars will be competing in a 40-lap race. Perfect. <laughs> you just totally took me out of the interview. <laughs> <Okay>, sorry. <laughs> you can do any period, too. Like, yeah. you, know, you throw out a decade, and he's, like, right in the pocket. My voice is in there in the parade. I mean, in the, uh, sorry, out the window when Baller's looking out the window in his hotel. Of course it is. Yeah, of course it is. <laughs> you know, I'm kind of, like, setting yeah. up the parade. But... Yeah. Shameless. Well, Mike, did you make the cut this time? No, <laughs> I didn't. I didn't even try. No, I, I got in a little bit in Ford Ferrari, but I had done an entire pass on that movie for the Daytona race and got canned at the last minute. So what about you, Mr. Westervelt? I think I looped something tenth there at one point, and I don't think it made the, uh, <laughs> the don't, I don't think it made it very far. Wait, who did get to do the map montage? Who edited that? That was a handoff. I think we all, I mean, Dirk and I touched it a couple times over. That was one of the one there were few little sections where we all had shots at scenes. John too. Yeah, John too. Oh yeah, I worked on the, the Sicily one. Yeah, I remember that one. Yep. I've been so, trying to remember that, remember everything now. <laughs> I'm looking at a Mai Tai right now. You go to Hawaii. I'm telling you, your brain shuts off <laughs> in Maui, okay? 
I remembered the movie that uh, one of the movies that Jim threw out was La Delante. It's a John Vigo movie from uh, 1934. It's about a uh, riverboat captain, like a cargo ship and this romance. It's And he threw that out, especially in relation to the boat stuff, like the stuff really that you were working on, Drew, the stuff on deck, not the uh, the dive so much. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, it's uh, 1934, Jean Vigo, La It's on a lot of lists of, like, great movies and stuff. So Mike made a point of saying, Dirk, that when you walked off the, uh, not quit, walked off, yeah. but when you were done, you said, hey, maybe next time I'll get to edit a little dialogue. Yeah. So maybe this question is for you, maybe it isn't, but I'm going to throw it out there. You have a fair amount of dialogue in the film, both comedic quips and little bits of expository info that are being dropped in the midst of these very wild action sequences. The talk talk sequence, for example, mm -hmm. you know, clarity in the dialogue is something that I would think you would have to be very careful with because as fun as these action sequences are, you want the jokes to pay off in full and the expository info to be clocked by the audience. Is that something you guys have to do a lot of passes on or be very cognizant of like, hey, I got to make sure that amidst all this craziness going on, the audience picked up that funny one-liner from Indy or that little bit of info that I need to know. Were you able to hear that stuff? For the most part. Yeah. But again, I'm, you know, my hearing went a while ago. Yeah. I mean, if it didn't go a while ago, it probably would have gone after hearing the tuck tuck. I don't know how loud they had the, the ref in that room you were in, but uh, it was pretty loud at the at the last screening I was at. Yeah. I mean, it's just, you know, you just have to suppress the effects in, in those places when it's in the middle of an action scene. And those character beats are what make the action scenes good. And there were more in the Tuck Tuck, for example, is one I can speak to because I was spent the most time in, but, you know, that I wish kind of were still there because at the end of the day, it's just, you know, it moves so fast and it, it almost feels over compressed. Like it also was simultaneously like a little long. So there was always an impulse to kind of compress it, but you lose some of the dialogue character moments in the process. But, uh, I mean, you guys had it, too, throughout with action and dialogue. You just got to make your choices on the stage. Well, while we're talking about dialogue, one aspect of the film that I think pretty much everyone's aware of, even if they haven't seen it, is that it features a digitally de-aged Indiana Jones, as well as his nemesis in the film. How does that aspect affect working with dialogue or doing scratch audio? Does that have any kind of impact into how you deal with those things because the face is being changed later on? We got that stuff pretty early to work with. He was still two years younger. So. <laughs> yeah, no. I recall the process. We selected certain dailies, certain takes, and we had those. There was a de-aging process on those selected takes, the full takes that we were able to w cut with pretty early on. I think the turnaround was like five days or something. It was temp, obviously, because it was a, just a, like a big ice cube with his de-aged face on his shoulders. But it allowed us to sort of like understand how his face was going to react in his performance and we can actually make notes and convey changes maybe that we want to execute later with the vendor but the scene with the flashback with baz <laughs> sorry with baz um i remember getting those dailies of uh of harrison that were um i think i had almost all the takes uh dh so it was great it was a pretty seamless process. So Jim could react immediately and, and pick the takes that he liked and the right performance for Harrison. Because it does change the performance of Harrison in a lot of ways, the de-aged image. As far as the, the voice goes, you know, I, I don't, there was discussion early on of like, was it going to have to be processed somehow? Or were they going to do this thing where they, you know, sample everything he's ever said 
in his younger years and then and then try to build a voice out of that or something. But Harrison was able to, you know, inflect his voice into a younger sounding, like he either sounds kind of the same still, or he was able to do it in such a way that it was approved anyway, in, in terms of, um, you know, just it was just his voice. Obviously, visual effects is something we could talk about a lot, but I want to go back to the sound because I think that's something that gets overlooked in a film like this. And I thought maybe we could break it down by looking at one scene in particular, and that is the motorcycle and horse chase throughout the astronaut parade in the beginning in the Canyon of Heroes in New York City. There's about a million sound elements going on there. You have constant movement in the action. You have constant echo because all that sound is being bounced off the walls and the buildings in New York City. When we do talk about visual effects, we talk about how you build up a scene visually from the storyboards and previs and then the different layers and renders of VFX. How does a sequence like that get built up sonically? Where do you start? How do you layer that up? Well, Drew Buckland sequence. Andrew Buckland. It's my professional name. <laughs> <laughs> Not Andy, though. Never Andy. No, no. <laughs> <laughs> um, of course, there was onset production sound that initially when I, I remember putting that scene together initially, I was just using, cause I, I wanted to, to put it together as quickly as I could for Jim to get his eyes on it. So I, I leaned into the production sound and sort of recut the production sound initially. And then the process was to s start stripping that stuff away. Once we got, once we landed on a, on an edit that we liked, we started to stripping out that sound and replacing. And originally that scene was sort of designed to be strictly sound effects with no music. Jim really wanted to explore that idea. Well, diegetic music, the bands. Yeah, diegetic, right. The bands, right, no score, just uh, whatever is playing in reality. Once we got the right horse hooves, that was the most difficult sound to sort of get right. And uh, crowds were involved. Once we put in the crowds, the reaction of the crowds sort of really came to life. And Don had a lot to do with that. So for a while, it lived without score. How did that play? It played really good. It was really, I think Jim, in that sequence, in the New York sequence, Jim really had in his mind uh, a very sort of 1970s aesthetic, like taking Pelham 1, 2, 3. And he was kind of dabbling in that kind of score idea, which was really interesting, but we weren't really using that as a temp. It was more of an idea. And then it just ended up, I think we realized, you know, for the sort of the indie of it all, John's music was added. And it did sort of elevate the scene and place it in the indie world, which I think was the reasoning behind it. But we didn't have a lot of score for that initially. I think that sequence sort of is classic Jim in a lot of ways for the way that the sound and design works. He's always been a guy who really wants dynamic ranges of not only volume, but of specificity within action sequences. So he's not somebody who just slathers on sound like louder is better. It's like he likes to get into these little pods of sound. So although it's your experience is like, holy shit, we've stacked all the sound on top of you. Watch the sequence like we have a moment with the astronauts. We get to the crowd. Everything is specific. Mm -hmm. And then that creates the feeling of traveling down the street and actually creates excitement. So the trick to that is if you were to sit with him at the beginning of the process and say, where do you want to be specific? He wouldn't be able to answer you. It's something he's discovering as he's cutting the scene and, and sometimes discovering on the mix stage, like what's important in this moment. And then he focuses on that. Right. So again, that's something he's always done in his movies. 
and I agree with it. I mean, there's nothing to me that's more boring than watching action scenes. It's just loud stuff, just kind of a lot of loud stuff. Yeah. So he wants that specific stuff. Drew just mentioned Pelham One Two Three. That's another thing. Just reminds me of your initial question about what references Jim was talking about. He talked about stuff like that kind of seventies, um, you know, Sidney Lumet as well, and yeah. like that. That so that was another point of reference. So, Mike, going back to Ford versus Ferrari, we did our interview in your cutting room over at Fox. Yes. And you said something from that interview that stuck with me since then. Uh-oh. You can insert your own <laughs> joke here if you want. Oh, no. Uh, you remember it. You couldn't have been kinder. <laughs> you said something that I've heard repeated since then by other editors, and that is often when an editor is cutting a film down to try and make it feel tighter, you actually make it feel longer because you took away pieces that either kept the audience engaged or helped them be more informed. Right. Were there scenes or story points in this film that you guys messed around with to get to that balance that was ultimately the right thing for this movie? Yes, absolutely. Um, numerous, <laughs> you know, all over the place. It's, it's, you know, I mean, it's an interesting, it's almost a philosophical question than it is an, a literal question. Because it's like, I always find myself surprised. I think any editor does where it's like you trim something and you feel more enmeshed and embellished in the scene, which in a weird way feels you're more engaged. It feels like you're having an experience, but you're actually making it shorter. And I think sometimes, you know, just the editing process, if you are too literal about it, it's like, well, if you got to make it longer. I just did a job. I did a fix a job after I finished Indy and we had this conversation with the other editor. And he's like, yeah, I was trying to make this thing feel more so i put all this extra stuff and i said oh that's stuff i took out <laughs> and it was just like and he's like yeah no it works i mean it was it wasn't a rivalrous thing and he's like yeah i know it works but it's like it's antithetical and it's just the messing with time which is what the, mm-hmm. we all do that sometimes you cut something down and it feels like you're i wouldn't say longer is the right word it just feels like you're in the movie and sometimes making something longer is what the movie needs. You need a moment. You need to allow the character to feel for a minute. So it's a, it's a weird dance. I can't really figure it out all the time. One aspect of this franchise I wanted to discuss before we wrap things up was the evolving tone of it. You know, Raiders had the famous climax with the three main bad guys either melting, exploding, or shriveling up. Temple of Doom really ratcheted up the gore even more to the point that it actually inspired the PG-13 tag that your film now has. Last Crusade, not so bad other than a lot of rats and, you know, the bad guy growing old and turning to dust. Dial of Destiny, I think to me was a much gentler is the wrong word, but what did he talk to you about the tone of this film in terms of like, well, how should it be now that Indiana Jones is at the age that he is compared to the kind of things that we saw in the first three films? I mean, I was curious how I was going to be coming into it because I came in a little later than these guys, right? And haven't had the experience with Ford Ferrari for a little bit, but that was kind of a separate kind of thing. And Logan was such a departure in tone from other movies in the franchise and in the genre and stuff. So I was curious, like, what's this going to be? You know, like, is Jim going to really put a big imprint and sort of change the vibe of the whole thing and make it, you know, is this going to be like the Logan of the Indiana Jones franchise? Um, I didn't assume that wasn't going to be the case. And I knew they were going to have to stick to a, you know, a PG um, adjacent rating. As far as the violence, it's such a story franchise and you have to kind of work within its bounds and and yet you know jim is a director that brings his imprint to things so there's a dance in that that had to occur on some level we were more or less aware of maybe in at certain stages you know rather than do the smart thing and just thank you guys for doing this and let everybody go home i have this glitch where i can't just end an episode that way i have to ask some kind of really stupid question and so i'm going to do that 
and we'll just see how it goes. And maybe you'll never talk to me again. <laughs> so in the film, the Dial of Destiny is an ancient device that reveals tears in the fabric of time, essentially enabling time travel. Let's just say that you each have half of the Dial of Destiny, which unlike the film still works, except you can only go backwards. You guys have the half that'll let you go backwards in time. You still with me? Do I have one half and... Dirk has another. You each have the same. Collectively. You just got literal Buckland. He's going in the literal mode. This is the first time in the interview he's actually leaning forward. He's <laughs> yeah. actually engaged. So we really have like a sixth each. Yeah, I knew I shouldn't have done this. You each have the same half. <laughs> yeah, okay, go ahead. So you each have a half of the Dial of Destiny, enabling you to go backwards in time. If you could use the dial to relive a moment in your career specifically, you know, either just to relive a, a high point that you want to enjoy again or change a, a moment or decision you made in your career, this could be a good thing where you want to enjoy something even more, or it could be something you wish you could change. And no, Mike, agreeing to talk to me today doesn't count. Um, but for each of you, what would that be? But it's a forced deck. I'm just going to go see Archimedes. Huh? No, you personally. Unless he hired you as an assistant, <laughs> it has to be specific to your career. I know. Even though I want to do it, I'm just going to end up seeing Archimedes. Oh. Um. Uh -oh. Get it now? Yeah, get it. I get it, got it. Okay. Well, go. You're you're on. Me? What am I going to do? What would you change or what would you want to relive? Oh, change. Um, <laughs> don't ask me these things. <laughs> it's a tough one, Matt. It's supposed to be. <laughs> don't ask me. Uh, oh, I would, man. I would like to relive the birth of my son. Which is a wonderful moment, but again, not... But not career-specific. Not career-specific. Well, I could have... <laughs> what happened to literal Buckland? I think that's a really nice thing, don't you, Dirk? I think it's beautiful. Yeah, it's Father's Day for crying yeah, out loud. That's his way of begging off the call to go spend time with his son. Yeah. Uh, I would... Uh, well, the obvious uh, answer is... Ah... Uh, the time uh, I want to relive the moment we won the BAFTA and I, I couldn't say anything. So I could actually say things. You were incapable or not allowed? I was incapable. He was having a moment a little like this. Yeah. I would like to relive that moment, moment and actually say something. Well, you have the floor. Oh, man. Now you're pushing it. Please, someone else take this. <laughs> <laughs> I, I hate this question. <laughs> And I, I, I just hate it. I'm on record. Well, now we have your quote for the open. Yeah. <laughs> we've crossed a Rubicon. It's we've all just become like old curmudgeonly yeah. editors. So <laughs> if I could go back, I'd heckle Drew and Mike at the Baptist. That's it. <laughs> Great. Yeah, yeah. I think I stood on the stage and I looked out and I'm like, bright lights. <laughs> That's what happened to my to my brain. <laughs> what about you, Chuckles? You got an answer? Oh, uh, God. Um, it's really uh, not politically correct. Well, it's not diplomatic, so I'm going to have to... I would, I, would, uh, I would have a little bit more time on stage at the Oscars. Just a little. Just a little bit. Well, he's making up for the BAFTA's tongue-tied thing. Yes. That's what happened to me. Yes, yes. I'm like, okay, now... I just know that by the time I started talking, there was eight seconds on the clock. 
because he decided to thank everybody, everybody, including the entire country of Argentina. <laughs> so it was that's, like, that's exactly right. So maybe I'd change that. But no, I mean, I've had like I've had my career up and downs and uh, the downs been down, but I don't think I'd be where I'm at if I hadn't had that. So I can't say, you know, would I like to experience that again and change it? No, but I'm happy to be here where I'm at. Well, speaking for myself, this is definitely an up. This is a good one for me. Thank you guys for doing this. See, I guess I can close an episode that way. <laughs> Drew, go have a Mai Tai. Yes. Go hit the beach. Okay, I'm going. Hawaii awaits. Enjoy. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks, man. No, no, Mike. Thank you. Thanks to all you guys for doing this interview at what had to be the worst possible time and day for you. I know that you know that I appreciate it. And I hope everyone listening appreciated it, too. You can show your appreciation by getting out to the movie theater and seeing Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny in one of the many formats that Dirk had to do the QC work on. Say, would you like to learn more about Avid Media Composer? Well, you should, especially if you're a student. Not a student of life or that kind of crap, but a student enrolled in a higher ed institution that offers undergrad and graduate degree programs. Because if you are, you can take advantage of Avid's new Media Composer for Students program and get the same editing tools used on Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny for free. And if you would like to know more, well, you just click that link in the show notes and let the internet do the rest. That will do it for another fun-filled, action-packed, take-no-prisoners episode of The Rough Cut. Speaking of prisoners, go easy on that 4th of July celebrating this week. You know I'd do just about anything for you, but I am running low on bail money these days. But have fun, be safe, and make sure to come back again next week. Until then, this is Matt Fury thanking you for joining me right here on The Rough Cut. Blah, 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 blah